And so we are, we're in the series, All Things New, and we're not doing anything fancy. We're just going through the book of Ephesians. And um, so if, if you're new, just a, a little bit, first off, welcome, like if, if this is your first time here. Uh, you're kind of jumping in midstream, like we've been in this series, All Things New, since the beginning of the year. And we're talking about how God is making all things new in Christ. Like that's, that's what he's doing in Jesus, in, in us, in our hearts, renewing us and um, and teaching us how to be new kinds of people, the people who God always wanted us to be. And so in the book of Ephesians, it's kind of like the, the book of Ephesians is kind of broken into two halves. There's like the first half, chapters one to three, that are all about like just this is who God is and this is what God has done through Jesus. And then the second half, chapters four through six, are all about how do we live that out. And I just want to like point out like this is kind of some cool symmetry between chapter two and chapter five. So next slide. Anthony, there we go. So in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we're told that Jesus is turning us into a new humanity. We've been talking about this. Like he's making us new. He's teaching us how to, how to be a different kind of people, new human beings. And in Ephesians 5, we're told that these new human beings that we're being made into, we learn how to walk in the way of love. So part of what it means to be new in Jesus is to learn how to walk in a Jesus-like love. So there's a new humanity. That's us. And then uh, there's another metaphor in chapter 2. It says, but you are also a new temple. Next slide. A new temple. Um, it says, like, you, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Like, you're the new temple. There's no building on earth where God's presence dwells. Right? There, there's no need for a temple because you are God's temple and you together as a church are God's temple. Like there is a new thing God is doing and his spirit is coming to fill his people. That's, that's us, people just like us. And here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, so okay, go ahead and be filled with the spirit. So our call as the new temple is to be being filled with the spirit, this ongoing surrender to the spirit of God and to trust that God's very presence like, just like the presence that was in the temple in the ancient times is now in us. Like, you're, you are the container in which God dwells by his spirit. God's church, his people, are the new temple. This is, this is amazing, this vision that Paul has for the church. And then lastly, not only are we a new humanity and a new temple, but we are a new family. A new family. In, in chapter 2, next slide. Uh, chapter 2, it says, like, you are members of God's household. Household is just another name for family. You're a new family, and this is what God is doing. New humanity, new temple, new family. And that's what we're going to look at today, verses 21 to 33, is how is God at work turning us into a new family, and how does that impact, like, our households, our families, um, and how does God's Spirit want to transform that? So, I mean, this is good news, right? I'm like, this is... Paul has this amazing vision of the church, a new humanity, a new temple, and a new a family. And I just want to like affirm you all in this. Like maybe, maybe we see this vision in the, the New Testament of like, wow, like that's, that's a high calling. But, but again, don't feel pressure to say like, wow, okay, we, we have to do better at doing this stuff. Because it's not a standard to live up to. It's just a, an identity to live into. God is doing this. And as we surrender our lives to him, as we let him have his will and his way in us, he does the work. He does the work in us. And I see this in you all, that, that as a church, like you all are a, you are like a, 
a visual glimpse of the good news of Jesus. The way you treat each other, the way you serve each other, the way you love one another, um, you're like this visual glimpse of the gospel. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So we're going to talk about households, and specifically we're going to talk about marriage. About marriage. The, the text we're looking at, verses 21 to 33, they, they talk quite a bit about marriage. What does a Jesus-centered vision of marriage look like? And I just want to like acknowledge, before we get into the text specifically, that in a group like this, um, in any church, and in our church as well, there is a wide bandwidth of experiences when it comes to like marriage and households. I mean, just to, to name a few, right? Like maybe, uh, maybe you're engaged to be married. Like we have a number of engaged couples in uh, the church, and so there's all this excitement and trying to figure that out. Um, maybe uh, you're in a place where you're married and thriving, right? Like we're, wow, life, life is good and we feel like we're drawn together and we're in a good season and we're growing closer. Uh, maybe you're married and, and in a hard season right now. Like maybe there's struggle and, and you're working through that and you're finding help. Maybe you're single. Um, maybe you're single because there's been loss. Like we talked about loss earlier today, the loss of a, of a spouse, um, someone who, who you've walked through your marriage vows with until death do us part, and you feel the loss today. And so as we talk about marriage, there's like, oh, there's a tenderness in that. For some, maybe we're single because of divorce, because of this, this separation. And we still feel, if we're honest, we feel the, the brokenness in our hearts because of that. Maybe some of us are single and we desperately want to be married. Like, just like, I, I, I long for that. It's a desire of my heart to have somebody to share my life with. And that hasn't happened yet. And, and lastly, like, maybe you're single and just, like, loving it. Like, finding a lot of meaning and fulfillment in, in being single and giving your life and service to, to God and his work. And so, just to name, like, I just want to, like, be aware of the complexity of something like this, right? That there's no way we can talk about all of these unique experiences. So let's be like, let's be really gracious with one another, understanding that we all hear this from a different place, from our own life and our own stories and our own journeys. Does that make sense? So um, a couple more comments of introduction. I just want to say this, just to be really clear. Marriage is not a higher calling than singleness. In, in the New Testament, um, Marriage is, is very clear. It, it is not a higher calling than singleness. Um, anybody know that Jesus was single? Like, hopefully that's not like a newsflash, right? Jesus was single, right? Lived a whole human, fulfilled, amazing life as a single man. And, and so uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians and much of the other New Testament, he was single as well. And both of them, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, if you read Matthew 19, these are the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, both said singleness is a higher calling if you can accept it. Like the call in the church to singleness and celibacy within that is actually a higher calling if you can accept it. And so I just want to like make that super, super clear that the church has often moved away from this. And the church has made it seem like, and, and I think wrongfully so, that if you're single, it's like a, a temporary thing, and it's almost like you can, you can feel like a second-class citizen in the church. And, and I hope that's not the case, like at LifeBridge. 
I hope you feel, if, if you are single, in whatever, um, whatever the cause of that singleness is, like we talked about earlier, I hope you feel seen and loved and you belong. Um, and the church, like sometimes like parents to their kids or in the church, we can use phrases like, well, so when you get married, right? And the expectation is like, you will. And I think we need to change that to say like, if you get married, because like singleness is a high and holy calling if we can accept it. We don't need to be married to be fulfilled, but we do need relationships. We do need community. Everybody does. And so the second, the second thing here is the church then is called to be a family. Like we're this new family, and so the church is called to be a family. So that's why the New Testament talks about one another as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, that in the church, in this new family, there is like this caring and nurturing uh, and loving community. Do you know that 46% of all Americans are single, 18 and over? So almost half of all adults are single. And so I think like the church, not just LifeBridge, but the church has to, to not just say, hey, we care about families and taking care of families. We do that for sure, but we care about being a family, right? We care about including one another in this family relationship because we need that. We're called to be the church, to care for each other, and to be with people who have different relational status than, than we do. So there's the introduction, all right? So let's dive into Ephesians 1, um, Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 32. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. It's the end of the sermon right there. I think we'll just... <laughs> I'm kidding. My wife is not in the room. She's in the nursery, so she can hear, but she can't respond, so... All right, just kidding. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself and after all no one ever hated their own body but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh and this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. God, I pray that as we, as we unpack your word this morning, that it would speak truth and life and hope and wholeness to us. God, we, we open ourselves to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's going on here, like in this, in this text? Does this make anybody feel uncomfortable? Just a little, a little cringy, right? Um, this might feel really foreign to us. We, we live in a cultural moment, like we live in a time where um, we get really keyed up, or there are lots of people that get really keyed up about anything that feels like patriarchy, quote unquote. 
you walk down the street or you see the memes on social media, it's like, smash the patriarchy, right? And so nobody's, you got those t-shirts? Okay, that's good. Um, and so on first reading, a text like this can make us feel super uncomfortable because it's like, oh, is that what this is? Is it like, is the Bible just kind of affirming like these hierarchical, patriarchal kind of roles in, in family? Um, but I think as we look deeper, we'll find something super profound and revolutionary happening here. I want you to notice, like, look, look at verse 21. So verse 21 says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to another out of reverence for Christ. Now, submit. That's like, that's almost a hard word to say. It kind of catches in my throat when I say it. I don't... What comes to your mind when you hear the word submit? Any like, Dennis? Obey, yeah. Humble, give up control. Yeah. Any like MMA fans where it's like you put somebody in a submission hold and you force somebody to tap out, right? A little arm bar or something. When I was a kid, it was like, you know, the stronger person would like sit on the other one and make them say uncle. You know that? Like, give up. And so, like, maybe those are the images that come to our mind of, like, submit. And if you are the person who is made to submit or to say uncle, it doesn't feel good, right? And so there's something in us that, like, I don't like that. I don't like that idea. I kind of want to reject it and rebel against it. The word submit is, in Greek, it's the word hupotasso. You want to say that? There you go, hupotasso, hupotasso. And it's made up of two words. The word tasso means to arrange, and the word hupo is under. So the idea, you can, you can get this, it's to arrange or to place under something or someone else. So the word submit is to say, I am choosing to submit, to place myself, like, in the sort of hierarchy, I'm choosing to place myself under you so that I can care for you, and so that I can serve you, and I can, like, by my, like, action toward you, I can lift you because I care about you more than myself. That's the idea of submit. Like, and it's all over the New Testament, right? You're choosing to submit, to, to put yourself under another person so that you can care for them and serve them and love them. This is part of what it means to walk in the way of love, to learn how to be this new humanity in this new temple and this new family. Now, who is the one another in this passage? Submit, place yourself under one another. Who, who's he addressing here? And I, before, it's not husbands and wives. It's all y'all. It's everybody. It's the whole church. And so it's submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. So we look at the example of Jesus, and in the church, in this new family, this new humanity, this new temple, we are learning to submit to each other. That means like we're learning to care about the needs of the other person more than our own, more than ourselves. We're using our gifts, our time, our resources to serve each other because if I want to see you grow and thrive and you want to see me grow and thrive, and when we do that, when we're like placing ourselves like under the other person to care for them, everybody rises. And that's the vision of the church. How does that feel? Does that feel a little different? Right, then, then to like force someone to submit or to obey. It's like we're choosing to do this. Why? Be- out of reverence for Christ. Because we look at the example of Jesus and we see the way that he did this for us, that he served us, that he loved us, that he stooped. 
to, to raise us and to, to bring us into his family. And so we do this out of reverence for Christ. This is the opposite of self-centeredness. It's self-sacrificial love. And this is what the church is called to do. And, and when we do this, and when the church does this well, nobody lacks anything. Right? I mean, there's this vision in the New Testament of an abundant community. Because there's a fear that says, like, well, what if I'm serving and, and submitting and placing my needs under somebody else's, but nobody does that for me? And, right? and then we kind of like, we pour ourselves out for others, but then we find ourselves being emptied. And we sort of cut off the flow of, of what God has in mind here when, when it's a one-way sort of submission. But the vision is that we're all doing this, and we're all doing it for each other. We're caring for each other's needs. Everybody rises, and there is this abundance in the church family, in the community. So that's the vision for the whole church. That's how it starts. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then when you look at verse 22... Verse 22 says this then, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So okay, so in the context of the church, this new family where everybody is doing this, he says like wives, of course, like to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now here's the interesting thing. The word submit isn't even in verse 22. You cannot read verse 22 apart from verse 21. So, and, and most of the sermons I've heard on on marriage, they start with verse 22 that says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And they start there, and they miss the verse right ahead of that, and you actually can't do it because the word submit isn't in verse 22. Are you with me? It changes everything, right? I was at a, I was at a wedding once. Um, I won't say whose it was, but the pastor like um, talked to the bride, and he said to her, like, hey, if you will submit, everything will go okay. It's like everything depends on you. And your willingness to submit. And, and it's completely taken out of context from verse 21. It says, no, 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 it's mutual. It's voluntary. We're all choosing to do this. So, um, wives to your own husbands is to the Lord. So here's what, here's what uh, Ben Witherington says. He's a commentator. He says, whatever submission means in verse 21, that's what it also means in verse 22. By which I mean, it's not a gender-specific activity. It would be better to take verse 21 as the heading for what follows in the instructions to the wife and the husband, in which case what is described in verse 22 is how, given their different roles, nonetheless husband and wife will each submit to and serve each other. That's the vision for marriage, is we're submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. And then, of course, like wives, all right, to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think the church has not done a good job of, of teaching it this way. Um, and, and like these kinds of what we're going to cover here today and, and next week are sometimes called the household codes. Like Paul, he's going to address husbands and wives and children and parents and then like masters and servants. And, and they're sometimes called the household codes. And these would have been super familiar to Paul's first audience because like the Ephesians and people in the first century, they had household codes that they had been taught growing up. And they were not um, codes that were written by the church they were written by people like Aristotle, like philosophers. Now, here's the thing that they would have all said. So these household codes um, by guys like Aristotle would have treated the head of the household like he was the king. Like it was a male-dominated society, and they only addressed the men. So they would say, men, you need to govern your household, you know, with authority. 
you need to make the people around you submit. One writer said that he must rule his slaves like a tyrant, his children like a king, and his wife while treating her as someone um, without inherent authority. So the household codes that everybody would have heard growing up is it's about power over. It's about domination. It is about control. It is about forcing those who are underneath you to obey you. That's all they would have known. And what Paul is doing in this passage is completely revolutionary. Like, I don't think we can quite grasp how unbelievably revolutionary what Paul is is doing here, that the church is different than that. It's different than that power over structure. It's new because everybody treats everyone uh, as someone with dignity, and we serve one another, and we love one another. What Paul does is absolutely world-changing. He, he does two things. He addresses women first. And if you were a woman sitting in the first century, and you were sitting there, and you know the household codes, you know, like, you know, like, okay, I'm supposed to know my place and whatever, and, and it was going to be the man who was addressed first, and Paul is, is reading this letter, and he says, wives, like, you would sit up because, like, what? Like, I'm being addressed here? Like, I'm somebody who, like, has dignity to, to hear and to make choices? Unbelievably revolutionary in this. The, the women were addressed first. Children are addressed before their, their parents, and servants are addressed before their masters. This is, this is unbelievably revolutionary, completely turning the household codes that they would have known upside down. And the second thing he does in these codes is husbands are to take leadership in serving. And this is where the churches miss this often, is like the women in, in this passage, there are 53 words spoken to the women. And there are 134 words spoken to the husbands. Right? The, like, it's clear the, the responsibility of, of, like, you want to say leadership, the leadership belongs then to the husband to lead the way in serving, in submitting, in serving um, your wife in love. Four times in eight verses, the Apostle Paul says this, to love and to serve your wife. I mean, this is, I want us to understand, this is the first, the New Testament, this passage right here in Ephesians chapter 5 is the first time anywhere in the written record in all of history that this kind of marriage relationship was put forward. Do you, do you feel that? There is nobody who said anything remotely close to this before the Apostle Paul. Why? It's because Jesus changes everything. I mean, Jesus changes everything. Here, in the church, because of what Jesus has done, wives are seen as like free people in Christ, people who have autonomy and authority to be able to make choices. And then Paul says, with your freedom, with your choices, choose to voluntarily serve your husbands. Like, not because you have to, but because this is who Christ is, and this is what he's doing in you. So you're going to choose to serve, to love, to honor your husbands. And yes, like husbands are called into this leadership role, but don't forget that leadership is redefined by Jesus. That if we want to know what leadership looks like, if you want to know what power looks like, if you want to know what authority looks like, you look at Jesus. It, like leadership, in what Paul is saying here in the scriptures, leadership does not mean, hey, I'm the boss and I get to make all the important decisions and your role is to, you know, follow along with me and, you know, uh, just kind of kind of support me going forward. But leadership in the church, leadership in a Jesus-centered marriage says, I get to take the lead in serving you as husbands so that your needs are met 
so that you'll feel loved and cared for. Like this, this is completely uh, turned on its head that Jesus redefined leadership as service. That that's what leadership is. Do you remember the story from, from John 13? So in John 13, Jesus is, um, he's with his disciples, and it's like the night before he is going to go to the cross and give his life, like surrender his whole life for the sins of the whole world. John 13. And he's having a meal with his disciples, and the text says something so profound. It says Jesus, he's sitting there at the table with his disciples having this, what we call the Last Supper together. And it says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his, and what does the text say? Power or authority. Jesus knew, sitting in that place, I have all authority in heaven and earth. The Father has placed everything under my power. Like Jesus knows he is the most powerful being in the universe in this moment. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. And what does he do with that power? Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does Jesus use his power to do? I mean, all power in heaven and earth, what does he do with it? He serves his disciples. He loves them. He takes the place of a servant. Do you see this? Like, he's choosing to submit himself to put himself in this lowest place to serve, to lift his disciples. And he does this with his whole life. This is what Jesus' life was. It was all authority in heaven and on earth, and he uses that authority to serve. And that's what the cross is, is this picture of Jesus emptying himself to the very end, giving himself away so that we can be brought into his family, so we can be forgiven and given a new life and a new hope and a new purpose and brought into this new humanity and this new family. This is what leadership looks like. And this is why so often in the church, like in the scriptures, we're called to live with gentleness and meekness. Now, how many of you, if I were to say, like, who should I pick on here? I'll pick on Joel. Joel, you, you are the most gentle person I know. Like, meekness is a virtue that I really, really respect in you. Would you take that as a compliment or would you be like, meekness? Like, is that an insult or a compliment? How many of you guys would be like, meekness? Somebody wrote you a card, like, I just really appreciate your meekness. We'd be like, what? Toughen up a little bit or something. Um, and, and I think this is the biggest misunderstanding. What is, what is gentleness and what is meekness? It's power that is under control. It's not saying you don't have power, but it's Jesus has all power, but that power is under control. And what does he do with it? He stoops. He chooses to serve, to love. And this is what husbands are called to in marriage. And it's what we're called to do with each other. Husbands get to take the lead in it, but it's mutual. We, we serve one another humbly in love. And then finally, there in John 13, Jesus says this. So this new command I give you, love, next slide there. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is saying, you're going to be a revolutionary community. People are going to look at you, and they're going to know the love that you have for each other, and they're going to see it. And it's going to be like, man, that's different. <sighs> Husbands, wives serving each other like that? That's it's crazy. Who does that? Honoring each other above themselves? Who does that in the church? 
And he's like, people are going to know that you're my disciples, that it's my love and my example in you because of the way that you love one another. How, how are we doing? So power, whatever power, whatever position, whatever responsibility we have, we use that to serve one another. I just, like verse 25 to, 20, to 30, let's just read this again. Husbands, so love your wives. Just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body. This is such an interesting thing, Paul says. No one has ever like hated their own body, but we feed and we care for our body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Like no one in history ever said anything like this before. It's brand new. It's world-changing stuff. And then... And then what Paul does is he frames all of this, this role between the husband and wife, and he frames it all, and he goes all the way back to the beginning of time, to the opening pages of the Bible, to Genesis 2. And here's what he says. He quotes Genesis 2, and he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's like, hey, everything I'm teaching here about Jesus and like this new kind of household, this new marriage, it's actually a fulfillment of the way God originally created it to be in Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so you read the opening pages of the Bible, and you just have these, it's almost like these opposite things are, God is creating, right? And, and this is super important that we, that we sort of understand this. Uh, you read Genesis 1 and 2, and it's like there's light and there's darkness, day and night, and they're opposites. There's, there's land and there's sea. They're, they're opposites, but they, they fit together. Um, they're counterparts. And then there's male and female. And God creates, like, male and female, like, gender in, like, the created world, trees, plants. Um, there, there's gender distinctions there. The animals, like, male and female. Like, there is this, in everything God is doing in, in the created world in Genesis 1 and 2, there is this this counterpart, this equal but opposite um, piece to what God is making. And so male and female and this vision of marriage, these two opposites. If you're married, look at your spouse and say, like, you're opposite me, right? You don't have to do that. Um, but there are, like, these differences. We have different visions of the world, different gifts, different um, personalities, different preferences, and there's something about the coming together, the unifying of these two that become one that is a really important part of, of the way God created the world. And I think this is, it's just worth noting to say, like, be very cautious. Like, I think, I think in, our, in our current moment, we have to be very cautious about saying gender doesn't matter. Or, like, redefining gender. I think we have to be very cautious of that because it is central to the story of God. It's like, it's right there in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and, and we have, I don't think we have the authority as created beings to, to sort of discount what God has created in the beginning, what Jesus goes back to when he's asked about marriage in, in Matthew 19, what the Apostle Paul says here as he quotes from Genesis 2. This is, this is an important, important piece. And so God's vision in marriage is this, this unifying of two different people coming together to become one flesh. How many of you know that marriage can be really hard? If we were a Pentecostal church, right? Somebody would say amen to that. It's kind of, I mean, Mary, Paul, one of my, 
I've often been tempted to write this on like a life verse kind of thing, um, but I never have, so maybe I'll start doing that now. It says, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. 1 Corinthians 7, right? <laughs> Some of you, like, right? Marriage is hard. Why is it so stinking hard? It's because it's like a, it's like a crucible, right? Are you familiar with the idea of a crucible? It's like this, this container that gets heated up. And, and it gets heated up, and it will, like, melt these metals, and it will purify them. Like, all the impurities will sort of come to the surface. And marriage creates this, this container, this covenant, this bond that says, I'm, I'm stuck with you, and you're stuck with me. Like, we've made a commitment, and we're in this thing together, and I'm not going anywhere, and you're not going anywhere, so we better figure this thing out. And it creates this, like, this crucible that changes us. And it like, it, it, like my selfishness and self-centeredness and like the, what I want to do with my time and my resources and like my vision of the world, all of that gets submitted and surrendered to another person. And, and they're saying, well, like, yeah, like I have my own desires and, and wants and, and plans and whatever. And like, I won't say my wife, you know, has those selfish things, but if she did, right, she's submitting those things to me. And, and we are Like, we're in this thing together, and it's changing both of us, and it is powerful, and sometimes it's really difficult, and it's also really beautiful, because two different people become one flesh. This is what what God says. It is a reflection of his desire to become one um, with with us, and and here's here's the last thing I want to say about this, is like the word one flesh is such a powerful word. Because it, it's actually the same word. Uh, next slide. What are we on? Slide, um, slide 27 there. There we go. Slide 27. I, I skipped a couple, Anthony. Slide 27. There we go. So the word one, and then you can hit the next slide, is actually the same word. And this is the most quoted scripture in the Old Testament. So if you're going to ask a Jew, like, what is the scripture? You wake up with it on your lips and you go to bed with it on your lips. This is, this is the one, Deuteronomy 6.4. So every morning, every evening, uh, throughout the day, Jewish people would say this, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the word one, for the two will become one flesh, and God is one. It's the same word. That there's something about your marriage that is meant to be a reflection of God's heart, of God's oneness. Like in a world where things are coming apart, in a world where it feels like everything is falling apart, where things are Velcro, where things are cracking, things are breaking, things are fractured, things are divided, things are separated, things are divorcing, things are splitting. In the middle of all of that, the vision that God is planting here is to say in the middle of all that, your marriage is meant to be a glimpse of the way things are supposed to be, of of two people as broken as they are, and and with all the rough edges that they have, coming together and serving each other and submitting to each other and loving each other. And your marriage is meant to give us a glimpse of what it means for, for God to make two things one, and it gives us hope that things that are broken can be fixed, that God can redeem and restore, that God can heal, that God can fix, that God can repair, that married couples, as we turn toward each other, even in our, our brokenness, and even in the challenges, that it gives us this, this picture of God being one with his people. This, this is a, a big vision of marriage and it, and it matters, and it matters a lot. And so, what do we do with this? 
Um, so just a, a, couple, a couple questions here, here at the end, a couple maybe responses. Like one would be like maybe a slide 30 there. Maybe you've been wounded. And maybe, again, this, this brings up whether it's loss or, or brokenness. Um, and you have wounds from a, a marriage relationship that did not go well. And it feels like, man, there's a part of your heart that if you're honest, it might have been years and years ago, but it is still, my heart's still broken. And you're asking questions like, can, can I heal? And maybe, like, healing is a journey, right? It's not, I, God doesn't often just heal us in a moment, but there are moments along the way where we feel the hands of the healer. And so maybe today is one of those moments. Like, maybe where it's just being honest about, like, yeah, I've got pain, I've got loss, there's brokenness in, in my life because of, of whatever it is I've experienced in marriage. And we just, we bring that to God today. We just honestly bring that to God. Just bring it to the healer because he, he loves you and he cares for you. The worship team can come up. Come up. Maybe, maybe if you're honest, like there's some conviction to say like I have wounded someone else. And like that there's this, this reality that like, oh, like, I was not willing to love and to, to submit to the other and to serve, or maybe I'm causing pain in a relationship right now. And, and maybe there's repentance to just say, God, I'm sorry. Like, and, and I don't want to do this anymore, and I, I want to be the one who takes the first step toward reconciliation, toward healing, toward um, mending the, the brokenness and the wounds. Like, so maybe there's just an honest moment of reflection and, and repentance and we have lots of resources as a church to be able to help, like to be able to help heal the brokenness in, in relationships. Is Jesus at the center of your life? Um, I, think, I think it just begs us to ask this question, like is there any part of your life where Jesus is not at the center? Whether you're single or married or, or moving toward marriage, whatever it is, are you, are you like just sort of offering this part of your life to God and saying, Jesus, I want you to lead me and I want you to be at the center of my life and I want to live out of that place. And are you being filled with the Spirit? Are you, are you walking with the Spirit? Are you allowing the Spirit to guide you in, in your relationship? So let's, just, let's take a moment and just kind of quiet ourselves before God and let the Spirit speak to us. God, we hear this, this high calling you have for the church and you have for marriages, you have for our lives and our relationships. And if we're honest, Lord, we, do, we know that we just fall so far short of that. And so it can feel hard and, and paralyzing and we can feel stuck and lost. And we're so grateful, God, that you don't abandon us, but you come to us. And and when we're honest with you and when we're open about wounds or, or failures, you, you move right toward us and you begin the process of healing. And so would you do your work in us today, whatever we need to hear from you? We want you to be the center of our lives. Holy Spirit, we want to be filled with you. We want to have the kind of love that looks like Jesus, that when people meet us, when people encounter us, when they interact with us, that that's what they feel. They feel your love coming through us. So even as we worship here and now, Jesus, just continue to do your work in us. Pray that you would heal everything that's broken. 
that you would, you would bind up wounds. Have your way in us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.